Okay, so we are halfway through point B of unit one of God's economics. So unit one is biblical pictures of provision from Eden to Goshen. We've started to break down the picture all the way back from the book of Genesis. We're going all the way through the book of Genesis in this unit of different pictures of God's economics, God's provision, and how mankind messes it up, and then how God continues to faithfully provide And then how God is always faithful once he enters into a covenant with people, how he reveals his faithfulness to them through including provision. He continues to provide for them. Well, we're up to point four in part B. So B is the curse, sweat and toil, thorns and thistles. And we've gone through Adam and Eve and how they ate from the wrong tree. We've gone through the thorns and the thistles. We've explained about Cain, and then he's building a city. And then all this violence is filling the world because everybody's just trying to survive, and it's survival of the fittest. Well, that led us up to the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, God saw that the earth was filled not with goodness, not with people who were rejoicing in God and enjoying his abundance, but it was filled with violence. So, God, you know the story. This story is throughout the world in many ancient cultures. There are different iterations of this, but God flooded the world. He preserved one man and his family. He preserved Noah. Noah found favor in the sight of God, and God spoke to Noah, and he said, look, I know you've never seen water fall from the sky because I've always watered the the ground with mist. You know, a mist from the ground has come up to water your crops and that, you know, there are rivers here and there that you can see and that's freshwater rivers that you can drink as opposed to the waters that are out in the sea. The waters of the sea, you know, that's all chaos and you could die out there. But there's freshwater rivers that have watered your crops and things in the mist of the ground. I know you've never seen what's called, it's called rain, uh, but I'm about to pour water out from the sky for 40 days and 40 nights, and that's going to flood the earth. So here's what you need to do. You need to build a really big boat. Okay, you need to build a boat and get your whole family inside the boat so that the boat will float up above the waters of judgment because I got to judge the whole world because it's become so wicked and violent in my sight. I've got to cleanse the ground from the sin of mankind. There's so much bloodshed of the innocent. There's so much violence. There's so much wickedness and evil. I can't I can't take it anymore. I can't be a just God and allow this to continue. And so I'm going to send this rain going to flood the earth with these waters of chaos. And this is, you know, Noah, you're going to make it through the flood. You're going to pass through the waters in the ark of God, and you'll come out the other side if you obey my voice and do this. So where we're at, where we're going to pick up, again, focusing on these stories through the lens of God's economics, is we're going to pick up after the flood. So Noah did what God said, he built the boat. He got his family in the boat. The God did what God said he was going to do. He reigned for 40 days and all of mankind, everything with the breath of life in it, except Noah and his family and a remnant of creation. So two by two, male and female, all of the animals got into the boat with Noah. So God did not do a complete redo. He did not destroy absolutely everything. He maintained a remnant of what he had created. One family in the earth. So Noah had three sons and their wives and also the animals, male and female, 
male and female can reproduce. You know, male and male can't reproduce, but male and female can reproduce. So two of every elephant, male and female. Two of every giraffe, male and female. You get the picture of all the different beasts and birds and all of these things. Now, the fish, they stayed in the water because that was cool for them. That's where they're living anyway. But you get the picture. So a remnant of creation Everything was brought into the ark that God told Noah to build. Noah built it. God sent the flood. And then the floodwaters began to recede. Noah is now, he's landed on Mount Ararat. And he finally, the the ground is dry and he's able to come out. And so that's where we're going to pick up. We pick up at Genesis 9, where Noah and his family, his sons, they come out of the ark after experiencing the flood. Everything else has been completely destroyed from the face of the earth. And God gives a command to them, this small remnant of humanity. He gives almost the same command to them that he gave to Adam and Eve in the beginning before the fall of mankind. So we're at Genesis 9, starting with verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Hallelujah. So we'll pause there. So the ground has now been cleansed from sin, right? The ground, it's still under the curse. It's still under the curse. Adam and Eve, they sold out. They sold out to the evil one. So the the ground and the, the curse is still on the ground of thorns and thistles. It's still cursed in that way. But there's a difference between the curse that's on the ground and the sin that is raising up its voice to the heavens that God has to wash away. So the earth is now cleansed from the sin of the wickedness and violence, even though it is still cursed. But because it's cleansed from the sin, which as we've seen, the more sin that there is, the more cursed the ground gets. It makes it very, very challenging for people to survive. And so it perpetuates that cycle of survival. The more blood that is shed, the less the ground produces because it's the more cursed it is. Well, now through the floodwaters, the ground has been cleansed of sin. So the ground has a new opportunity being cleansed cleansed to produce bountifully again. So we're back to not exactly God's original design, but even though the ground is cursed, you know, a, a tree is going to produce what a tree is supposed to produce. There might still be some crop failure here and there, but this is a fresh start. The sin has been cleansed from the land because of the flood. So God is again, saying, hey, I, you know, I, I brought food. There is enough in this creation. It's like now that the flood is gone, this creation is going to resume what I originally designed it to do, and masses of food are going to be created. So you got to get busy being fruitful and multiplying to consume all of this food that I created. And God's hope is like, hey, you're all one family, so hopefully you're going to be able to get along and not start wars with one another like happened before. You know, like, please don't start killing your brother. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So we'll pick up at verse two. God says, you know, what we just said is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now verse two, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Hallelujah. 
Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I give, just as I gave you, the green plants. So we talked about this in the prior sessions, where originally Adam and Eve were fruitarians and the beasts of the field ate the green plants. So mankind didn't eat the green plants at first. But then when Adam and Eve disobeyed, God said, okay, now the earth is not going to produce as much as it did before. And since I, I love you and I don't want there to be a food shortage, now I'm going to expand your food supply so you're going to be allowed to eat the plants of the field as well. Well, now the ground has been cleansed, but Noah's Noah's family, they're living under, you know, generations later, 10 generations later of the cursed existence. So God is, again, as an act of mercy, he's enlarging, he's increasing the food supply. So he's like, yeah, remember back then with Adam and Eve when I enlarged the food supply by allowing them to eat the green plants rather than just the, the seed-bearing fruit? Well, now, after the flood, I'm enlarging the food supply again so that you can eat everything that lives, you know, the beasts and the, the birds and the fish and all of that. You can eat any of that. I'm, I'm giving that to you the same way that I gave you the green plants before. I give it all to you for your food. So God is so, he continues to be so merciful to mankind, even in their cursed existence. He desires to still provide faithfully, generously, abundantly for them. And this is the point at which mankind, if you want to have a steak every once in a while, you want to dig into a juicy hamburger, go for it. It's okay. You don't have to go start being a fruitarian like Adam and Eve. God, you know, this is the point in history at which God God made meat eating okay for mankind. And again, New Covenant people, you know, Jesus said all things are clean for you. So I don't want you to start getting all crazy about the food stuff. We're trying to just look at God's generosity and his provision. Okay, so, but we're at verse four, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. For Okay, so God is saying if you're going to kill a beast to eat it, you have to drain the blood out on the ground. You can't eat the blood, right? The life of a creature is in the blood. You can't eat the life. I am the source of life. God wants us to know he is the source of life, not meat. Red meat is not your source of life. The, the blood of another creature is not your source of life. God, the book of Leviticus says, gave blood for atonement, not for eating. So for every beast that you kill, God requires a reckoning. You've got to give account for that. You've got to give account for what you did with that. If you eat the beast with the blood, you're going to give account to God for that, right? But he also says, uh, for from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So you can't just go killing people. God is making this abundantly clear. Why did God have to make this abundantly clear? Because people were killing each other. Hello. It was the first story that happened after, you know, Adam and Eve had kids. Like the first brother killed the other brother. So God is like, yeah, but come on, people, don't do that, man. Like, this is not my design. So he's like, look, here's the deal. If you do that, 
You're going to give account to me for that. Well, why does he say that? We're at verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So God is saying, when you kill another man, you're not killing them. You're killing me because I made them in my image. So if you kill them, then I'm going to have someone else kill you. God is sovereign over all things. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is the introduction of the avenging of blood. So when somebody kills, then there's an avenger that is raised up to kill the one who committed murder. Why? Because God made man in his own image. But God repeats himself, verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Hallelujah. So it's almost exactly the same thing that God said to Adam and Eve. He's like, this creation was designed to produce bountifully. So please have a lot of kids as fast as you can because there's a lot of food to be eaten and I still have hope for my original design. So please, let's work towards getting back to my original design for creation and for mankind. But you know, if you know your Bible, we're only at chapter 9 of the book of Genesis. That's not how it went. So let's keep going. We'll do that in a second. Okay, so if you know your Bibles, which many of you do, you know that it doesn't take mankind long after the flood of Noah and after they've come out of the boat and after God has blessed them and told them to go be fruitful and multiply, it doesn't take mankind long to mess it up yet again. Okay, so we go, how many chapters have we gone? We're going one chapter. Uh Wah, 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 from Genesis 9 to Genesis 10, and mankind is already messing it up yet again. So Noah and his sons, they come out of the ark. God says, be fruitful and multiply, and they get to work. So they start multiplying so much. They have sons and sons and sons, and obviously they have daughters too, because you got to procreate with a man and a woman. So we're going forward, and they create, by Genesis 10, it is called the Table of Nations. So their descendants start to be gathered into groups that are known as nations, right? You get, but all of the are descended from Noah and his three sons. Well, in the mix of this, there's a guy named Nimrod. And Nimrod is a mighty hunter before the Lord. Well, we might think today, and even through some of the biblical pictures that we have seen, you might think, hey, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Like, I can think of some people that would be like, yeah, that's my man. He's a good provider. He's a mighty hunter. He can go get me. He can go shoot a deer and bring it home. And we have food for the whole season. Woohoo! That's my man. He's a mighty hunter. Okay, that's how we think about it. But in biblical terms, that's not exactly God's perspective on this. So we're going to pause here and look at Nimrod. Nimrod is a descendant of Noah's son, Ham. Um, 
And Nimrod is the one who leads the whole world into the building of the Tower of Babel. So he's a mighty hunter, but he's also a rebel against God and against everything that God stands for. So let's take a look. So Genesis 10, starting with verse 8, Cush, now Cush was the son of Ham. So Cush fathered Nimrod, and he was the first on earth to be called a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. All right, there it is right there. So uh, Nimrod built cities. He built cities. Why? Because he was a mighty hunter. He was a murderer. He was a killer. He was a violent man. And he ruled the world. He began to start to rule the world and rule over all of the territories of the world. How? By being a mighty warrior. This is not the way of God. And it's, I just want to break that off of you. If you have a good image of Nimrod, because you have a husband that can go get hunting meat for you, this is not the same thing. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. And then it goes on and it lists a couple of other places. But one of the highlights is he also built Assyria and he built Nineveh. Well, these, if you know your Bible, like these are the cities and the places and the territories and the peoples that become the enemies of God. There's something in their national DNA that is rooted all the way back to Nimrod. Now, Nimrod, he built the Tower of Babel. He gathered all of mankind together and he said, hey, let's build a tower up to heaven so that we don't even need God anymore. So Nimrod, through his violence, through his wickedness, through his skills as a mighty warrior, he is attempting to rule the whole world, to dominate all of the world resources and dominate all people. And he seems to be fairly successful at it because he managed under his kingship in his city to get all of the people of the world in agreement for building this tower. And they had at the time the latest, greatest technology. Do you know what that technology was? That the way that the technology that they were going to use as humankind to not need God anymore. This technology was the solution. Woohoo! Like we can build our own tower. We don't need God anymore. The invention, the technology was the brick. So before Nimrod, people are building things out of stone. Well, stone can be kind of clumsy to work with, and you need some mortar in there so that the stones don't fall over, especially if they have smooth edges. You don't know if the stone is going to fall off of another stone. But bricks, now a brick, that's man-made, and it's a perfect square. So you can stack those things up, stack, 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 stack. We're going to build a really big high tower. We're going to reach so far up into the heavens. The, the name for the Tower of Babel in the ancient Akkadian language is the Gate of God. Okay, so they're like, yeah, we're going to reach up into the heavens. We're going to access heaven's power. We don't even need God anymore. We've got rule and control over all the world's resources, and we can be independent from God. This was the goal of Nimrod, and he got all the people in the world to agree with this goal and 
and build the Tower of Babel with him. Um, There is also a quick note. Now, for those of you, ladies especially, who like to wear leopard print, um, this is a historical fact. The reference is there in your study guide. But Nimrod, um, he was known historically as we said, for being a mighty hunter and a warrior, but he's the first man that made wearing animal skins a fashion statement, okay? But it's not like today, although some of you, I've met you, you are pretty ferocious, I have to say. But anyway, Nimrod, he wore the animal skins to demonstrate as a a symbol of his violence and his ability to rule, dominate, and control you. So he would wear wear a leopard skin, or he would wear a bear skin, or he would wear, you know, like even if you can picture in your mind from uh, cultures, there are cultures that do this even today, where they take a beast and they hollow out the head and they wear the beast's head on top of their head. So it looks like they are the beast or they become the beast. But then the, the rest of the skin is falling like a cloak or a coat on the person who's wearing it. Well, Nimrod would do that, but Nimrod would also wear cloaks that were made made of leopard skin or bear skin or the the skins of ferocious animals. But the point, the expression with nonverbal communication to anyone who would see him walking by, if there were subtitles, this is Nimrod walking by with the leopard print cloak on him. That's not like fake leopard print. This is the real thing, right? He's walking by and the subtitles, he's not saying a word, but the subtitles say, I killed this animal and I can kill you too. So don't mess with me. That's what Nimrod was communicating by wearing the animal prints, okay? So Nimrod was known over all the earth. He was a mighty warrior. He used violence and aggression and selfish ambition, getting people all to agree with his selfish ambition in this project called the Babel Project, the Tower of Babel Project, to try to reach up, control all the world's resources, and reach up to the heavens so that mankind would not even need. God anymore. So if you want to keep wearing leopard print, I have a dear friend. I love her very much, but she wears a lot of leopard print, and she's already heard me give this teaching before. So now when we meet up for coffee or whatever, she's wearing leopard print, and she's like, yep, I got my Nimrod gear on, you know? So there's no condemnation for you. You want to keep wearing leopard print, that's A-OK. But now you know historically where that comes from and what that non-verbally sometimes communicates to people about what you might be saying you're able to do to them. This is how Nimrod used nonverbals to uh, rule and dominate the world. He was a violent man, and this was how one of the ways that he demonstrated it to the world. But the point is that even from, you know, that mankind is given a command, okay, God has cleansed the earth through the flood. Things are clean now. The The earth, now that it's cleansed of all of this sin, is going to start multiplying and producing. So God's hope is like, hey, stop killing each other. Stop with the violence. I've got plenty of provision for everybody. You don't have to fight anymore. You know, knock it off with all of that. I want my people to get, get along. This is my design. I've provided plenty for you. But that wasn't good enough for mankind. 
Nope. Instead, they have to resume with the violence. They have to try to rule, control, and dominate one another. They dominate one another through resources. Who has the resources? And then whoever is control in control of the resources, they also then have control of people, right? So, we're, so this is just giving you, again, we're in biblical pictures of provision. These are different ways that people have done things God's way, or mostly what we've seen so far is people not doing it God's way. And the messes that we get ourselves into when we're not doing things God's way, when we're not trusting God for provision, when we take matters into our own hands, make ourselves independent from God, and rely on ourselves and our own ability to procure resources for ourselves. It leads to bad things. And we've seen that again and again in the Bible, and we've only just begun.